0: story two of the bet and other stories by anton chekhov this librivox recording is in the public domain story two a tedious story from an old man's journal part two after the lecture i sit at home and work i read reviews dissertations or prepare for the next lecture and sometimes i write something i work with interruptions since i have to receive visitors the bell rings it is a friend who has come to talk over some business he enters with hat and stick he holds them both in front of him and says just a minute a minute sit down cher confrere. only a word or two. First, we try to show each other that we are both extraordinarily polite and very glad to see each other i make him sit down in the chair and he makes me sit down and then we touch each other's waists and put our hands on each other's buttons as though we were feeling each other and afraid to bum ourselves we both laugh though we say nothing funny sitting down we bend our heads together and begin to whisper to each other we must gild our conversation with such chinese formalities as you remarked most justly or i have already had the occasion to say we must giggle if either of us makes a pun though it's a bad one when we have finished with the business my friend gets up with a rush waves his hat towards my work and begins to take his leave we feel each other once more and laugh i accompany him down to the hall there i help my friend on with his coat but he emphatically declines so great an honour then when yeager opens the door my friend assures me that i will catch cold and i pretend to be ready to follow him into the street and when i finally return to my study my face keeps smiling still it must be from inertia a little later another ring some one enters the hall spends a long time taking off his coat and coughs Jaeger brings me word that a student has come i tell him to show him up in a minute a pleasant-faced young man appears for a year we have been on these forced terms together he sends in abominable answers at examinations and i mark him gamma every year i have about seven of these people to whom to use the student slang i give a plough or haul them through those of them who fail because of stupidity or illness usually bear their cross in patience and do not bargain with me only sanguine temperaments open natures bargain with me and come to my house people whose appetite is spoiled or who are prevented from going regularly to the opera by a delay in their examinations with the first i am over-indulgent the second kind i keep on the run for a year sit down i say to my guest what was it you wished to say forgive me for troubling you professor he begins stammering and never looking me in the face i would not venture to trouble you unless i was up for my examination before you for the fifth time and i failed i implore you to be kind and give me a saddest because the defence which all idlers make of themselves is always the same they have passed in every other subject with distinction and failed only in mine which is all the more strange because they had always studied my subject most diligently and know it thoroughly they failed through some inconceivable misunderstanding forgive me my friend i say to my guest but i can't give you a satis impossible go and read your lectures again and then come and then we'll see pause i get a desire to torment the student a little because he prefers beer and the opera to science and i say with a sigh in my opinion the best thing for you now is to give up the faculty of medicine altogether with your abilities if you find it impossible to pass the examination then it seems you have neither the desire nor the vocation to be a doctor my sanguine friend's face grows grave excuse me professor he smiles but it would be strange to say the least on my part studying medicine for five years and suddenly to throw it over yes but it's better to waste five years than to spend your whole life afterwards in an occupation which you dislike immediately i began to feel sorry for him and hastened to say well do as you please read a little and come again when the idler asked dully whenever you like tomorrow even and i read in his pleasant eyes i can come again but you'll send me away again you beast of course i say you won't become more learned because you have to come up to me fifteen times for examination but this will form your character you must be thankful for that silence i rise and wait for my guest to leave but he stands there looking at the window pulling at his little beard and thinking it becomes tedious my sanguine friend has a pleasant succulent voice clever amusing eyes a good-natured face rather puffed by assiduity to beer and much resting on the sofa evidently he could tell me many interesting things about the opera about his love affairs about the friends he adores BUT UNFORTUNATELY IT IS NOT THE THING, AND I WOULD SO EAGERLY LISTEN. ON MY WORD OF HONOR, PROFESSOR, IF YOU GIVE ME A SATIS, I'LL, AS SOON AS IT GETS TO MY WORD OF HONOR, I WAVE MY HANDS AND SIT DOWN TO THE TABLE. THE STUDENT THINKS FOR A WHILE AND SAYS DEJECTEDLY, IN THAT CASE, uh, GOOD-BYE, Uh, FORGIVE ME. GOOD-BYE, MY FRIEND, GOOD-BYE he walks irresolutely into the hall slowly puts on his coat and when he goes into the street probably thinks again for a long while having excogitated nothing better than old devil for me he goes to a cheap restaurant to drink beer and dine and then home to sleep peace be to your ashes honest labourer a third ring enters a young doctor in a new black suit gold-rimmed spectacles and the inevitable white necktie he introduces himself i ask him to take a seat and inquire his business the young priest of science begins to tell me not without agitation that he passed his doctor's examination this year and now has only to write his dissertation he would like to work with me under my guidance, and I would do him a great kindness if I would suggest a subject for his dissertation. I would be delighted to be of use to you, mon cher confrere, I say, but first of all let us come to an agreement as to what is a dissertation. Generally we understand by this work produced as the result of an independent creative power. Isn't that so?' but a work written on another's subject under another's guidance has a different name the aspirant is silent i fire up and jump out of my seat why do you all come to me i can't understand i cry out angrily do i keep a shop i don't sell these across the counter for the one thousandth time i ask you all to leave me alone forgive my rudeness but i've got tired of it at last the aspirant is silent only a tinge of colour shows in his cheek his face expresses his profound respect for my famous name and my erudition but i see in his eyes that he despises my voice my pitiable figure my nervous gestures when i am angry i seem to him a very queer fellow i do not keep a shop i storm it's an amazing business why don't you want to be independent why do you find freedom so objectionable i say a great deal but he is silent at last by degrees i grow calm and of course surrender the aspirant will receive a valueless subject from me will write under my observation a needless thesis will pass his tedious disputation cum laude and will get a useless and learned degree the rings follow an endless succession but here i confine myself to four The fourth ring sounds, and I hear the familiar steps, the rustling dress, the dear voice. Eighteen years ago, my dear friend, the oculist, died, and left behind him a seven-year-old daughter, Katie, and sixty thousand roubles. By his will, he made me guardian. Katie lived in my family till she was ten. Afterwards, she was sent to college, and lived with me only in her holidays in the summer months i had no time to attend to her education i watched only by fits and starts so that i can say very little about her childhood the chief thing i remember the one i love to dwell upon in memory is the extraordinary confidence which she had when she entered my house when she had to have the doctor a confidence which was always shining in her darling face She would sit in a corner somewhere with her face tied up, and would be sure to be absorbed in watching something. Whether she was watching me write and read books, or my wife bustling about, or the cook peeling the potatoes in the kitchen, or the dog playing about, her eyes invariably expressed the same thing. Everything that goes on in this world, everything is beautiful and clever. She was inquisitive and adored to talk to me, She would sit at the table opposite me, watching my movements and asking questions. She is interested to know what I read, what I do at the university, if I'm not afraid of corpses, what I do with my money. Do the students fight at the university, she would ask? Oh, they do, my dear. You make them go down on their knees? I do. And it seemed funny to her that the students fought and that I made them go down on their knees, and she laughed she was a gentle good patient child pretty often i happened to see how something was taken away from her or she was unjustly punished or her curiosity was not satisfied at such moments sadness would be added to her permanent expression of confidence nothing more i didn't know how to take her part but when i saw her sadness i always had the desire to draw her close to me and comfort her in an old nurse's voice oh my darling little orphan i remember too she loved to be well dressed and to sprinkle herself with scents in this she was like me i also love good clothes and fine scents i regret that i had neither the time nor the inclination to watch the beginnings and the growth of the passion which had completely taken hold of Katie when she was no more than fourteen or fifteen i mean her passionate love for the theatre when she used to come from the college for her holidays and live with us nothing gave her such pleasure and enthusiasm to talk about as plays and actors she used to tire us with her incessant conversation about the theatre i alone hadn't the courage to deny her my attention my wife and children did not listen to her when she felt the desire to share her raptures she would come to my study and coax Nikolai Stepanitch, do let me speak to you about the theatre i used to show her the time and say i'll give you half an hour fire away later on she used to bring in pictures of the actors and actresses she worshipped whole dozens of them then several times she tried to take part in amateur theatricals and finally when she left college she declared to me she was born to be an actress i never shared katie's enthusiasms for the theatre my opinion is that if a play is good then there's no need to trouble the actors for it to make the proper impression you can be satisfied merely by reading it if the play is bad no acting will make it good when i was young i often went to the theatre and nowadays my family takes a box twice a year and carries me off for an airing there of course this is not enough to give me the right to pass verdicts on the theatre but i will say a few words about it in my opinion the theatre hasn't improved in the last thirty or forty years i can't find any more than i did then a glass of clean water either in the corridors or the foyer just as they did then the attendants fine me sixpence for my coat though there's nothing illegal in wearing a warm coat in winter just as it did then the orchestra plays quite unnecessarily in the intervals and adds a new gratuitous impression to the one received from the play just as they did then men go to the bar in the intervals and drink spirits if there is no perceptible improvement in little things it will be useless to look for it in the bigger things when an actor hidebound in theatrical traditions and prejudices tries to read simple straightforward monologue to be or not to be not at all simply but with an incomprehensible and inevitable hiss and convulsions over his whole body or when he tries to convince me that chatsky who is always talking to fools and is in love with a fool is a very clever man and that the sorrows of knowledge is not a boring play then i get from the stage a breath of the same old routine that exasperated me forty years ago when i was regaled with classical lamentation and beating on the breast every time i come out of the theatre a more thorough conservative than i went in it's quite possible to convince the sentimental self-confident crowd that the theatre in its present state is an education but not a man who knows what true education is would swallow this i don't know what it may be in fifty or a hundred years but under present conditions the theatre can only be a recreation but the recreation is too expensive for continual use and robs the country of thousands of young healthy gifted men and women who if they had not devoted themselves to the theatre would be excellent doctors farmers schoolmistresses or officers it robs the public of its evenings the best time for intellectual work and friendly conversation i pass over the waste of money and the moral injuries to the spectator when he sees murder adultery or slander wrongly treated on the stage but katie's opinion was quite the opposite she assured me that even in its present state the theatre is above lecture-rooms and books above everything else in the world the theatre is a power that unites in itself all the arts and the actors are men with a mission no separate art or science can act on the human soul so strongly and truly as the stage and therefore it is reasonable that a medium actor should enjoy much greater popularity than the finest scholar or painter no public activity can give such delight and satisfaction as the theatrical so, one fine day, Katie joined a theatrical company and went away. I believe to Ufa, taking with her a lot of money, a bag full of rainbow hopes, and some very high-class views on the business. Her first letters on the journey were wonderful when i read them i was simply amazed that little sheets of paper could contain so much youth such transparent purity such divine innocence and at the same time so many subtle sensible judgments that would do honour to a sound masculine intelligence the volga nature the town she visited her friends her successes and failures she did not write about them she sang every line breathed the confidence which i used to see in her face and with all this a mass of grammatical mistakes and hardly a single stop scarcely six months passed before i received a highly poetical enthusiastic letter beginning i have fallen in love she enclosed a photograph of a young man with a clean-shaven face and a broad-rimmed hat with a plaid thrown over his shoulders the next letters were just as splendid but stops already began to appear and the grammatical mistakes to vanish they had a strong masculine scent Katie began to write about what a good thing it would be to build a big theatre somewhere in the volga but on a cooperative basis and to attract the rich businessmen and shipowners to the undertaking there would be plenty of money huge receipts and the actors would work in partnership perhaps all this is really a good thing but i can't help thinking such schemes could only come from a man's head anyhow for eighteen months or a couple of years everything seemed to be all right Katie was in love had her heart in her business and was happy but later on i began to notice dear symptoms of a decline in her letters it began with Katie complaining about her friends this is the first and most ominous sign if a young scholar or litterateur begins his career by complaining bitterly about other scholars or litterateurs, it means that he is tired already and not fit for his business katie wrote to me that her friends would not come to rehearsals and never knew their parts that they showed an utter contempt for the public in the absurd plays they staged and the manner they behaved to swell the box-office receipts the only topic of conversation serious actresses degrade themselves by singing sentimentalities and tragic actors sing music-hall songs laughing at husbands who are deceived and unfaithful wives who are pregnant in short it was amazing that the profession in the provinces was not absolutely dead the marvel was that it could exist at all with such thin, rotten blood in its veins. In reply, I sent Katie a long and, I confess, a very tedious letter. Among other things, I wrote I used to talk fairly often to actors in the past, men of the noblest character, who honored me with their friendship from my conversations with them i understood that their activities were guided rather by the whim and fashion of society than by the free-working of their own minds the best of them in their lifetime had to play in tragedy in musical comedy in french farce and in pantomime yet all through they considered that they were treading the right path and being useful you see that this means that you must look for the cause of the evil not in the actors but deeper down in the art itself and the attitude of society towards it this letter of mine only made katie cross you and i are playing in different operas i didn't write to you about men of the noblest character but about a lot of sharks who haven't a spark of nobility in them they are a horde of savages who come on the stage only because they wouldn't be allowed anywhere else the only ground they have for calling themselves artists is their impudence not a single talent among them but any number of incapables drunkards intriguers and slanderers i can't tell you how bitterly i feel it that the art i love so much is fallen into the hands of people i despise it hurts me that the best men should be content to look at evil from a distance and not want to come nearer instead of taking an active part they write ponderous platitudes and useless sermons and more in the same strain a little while after i receive the following i have been inhumanly deceived i can't go on living any more do as you think fit with my money i loved you as a father and as my only friend forgive me so it appeared that he too belonged to the horde of savages later on i gathered from various hints that there was an attempt at suicide apparently katie tried to poison herself i think she must have been seriously ill afterwards for i got the following letter from yalta where most probably the doctors had sent her her last letter to me contained a request that i should send her at yalta a thousand roubles and it ended with the words forgive me for writing such a sad letter i buried my baby yesterday after she had spent about a year in the crimea she returned home she had been travelling for about four years and during these four years i confess that i occupied a strange and unenviable position in regard to her when she announced to me that she was going on to the stage and afterwards wrote to me about her love when the desire to spend took hold of her as it did periodically and i had to send her every now and then one or two thousand roubles at her request when she wrote that she intended to die and afterwards that her baby was dead i was at a loss every time all my sympathy with her fate consisted in thinking hard and writing long tedious letters which might as well never have been written but then i was in loco parentis and i loved her as a daughter Katie lives half a mile away from me now she took a five-roomed house and furnished it comfortably with the taste that was born in her if any one were to undertake to depict her surroundings then the dominating mood of the picture would be indolence soft cushions soft chairs for her indolent body carpets for her indolent feet faded dim dull colours for her indolent eyes for her indolent soul a heap of cheap fans and tiny pictures on the walls pictures in which novelty of execution was more noticeable than content plenty of little tables and stands set out with perfectly useless and worthless things shapeless scraps instead of curtains all this combined with a horror of bright colours of symmetry and space betokened a perversion of the natural taste as well as indolence of the soul for whole days Katie lies on the sofa and reads books mostly novels and stories she goes outside her house but once in the day to come and see me i work Katie sits on the sofa at my side she is silent and wraps herself up in her shawl as though she were cold either because she is sympathetic to me or i because i had got used to her continual visits while she was still a little girl her presence does not prevent me from concentrating on my work at long intervals i ask her some question or other mechanically and she answers very curtly or for a moment's rest i turn towards her and watch how she is absorbed in looking through some medical review or newspaper and then i see that the old expression of confidence in her face is there no more her expression now is cold indifferent distracted like that of a passenger who has to wait a long while for his train she dresses as she used well and simply but carelessly evidently her clothes and her hair suffer not a little from the sofas and hammocks on which she lies for days together and she is not curious any more she doesn't ask me questions any more as if she had experienced everything in life and did not expect to hear anything new about four o'clock there is a sound of movement in the hall and the drawing-room it's liza come back from the conservatoire bringing her friends with her you can hear them playing the piano trying their voices and giggling yeager is laying the table in the dining-room and making a noise with the plates Goodbye, says katie i shan't go in to see your people they must excuse me i haven't time come and see me when i escort her into the hall she looks me over sternly from head to foot and says in vexation you get thinner and thinner why don't you take a cure i'll go to sergius Fyodorovich and ask him to come you must let him see you it is not necessary katie i don't understand why your family does nothing they're a nice lot she puts on her jacket with her rush inevitably two or three hairpins fall out of her careless hair onto the floor it's too much bother to tidy her hair now besides she is in a hurry she pushes the straggling strands of hair untidily under her hat and goes away as soon as i come into the dining-room my wife asks was that Katie with you just now why didn't she come to see us it really is extraordinary mamma says liza reproachfully if she doesn't want to come that's her affair there's no need for us to go on our knees very well but it's insulting to sit in the study for three hours without thinking of us but she can do as she likes Varya and liza both hate katy this hatred is unintelligible to me probably you have to be a woman to understand it i'll bet my life on it that you'll hardly find a single one among the hundred and fifty young men i see almost every day in my audience or the hundred old ones i happen to meet every week who would be able to understand why women hate and abhor Katie's past her being pregnant and unmarried and her illegitimate child yet at the same time i cannot bring to mind a single woman or girl of my acquaintance who would not cherish such feelings either consciously or instinctively and it's not because women are purer or more virtuous than men if virtue and purity are not free from evil feeling there's precious little difference between them and vice i explain it simply by the backward state of women's development the sorrowful sense of compassion and the torment of conscience which the modern man experiences when he sees distress have much more to tell me about culture and moral development than have hatred and repulsion the modern woman is as lachrymose and as coarse in heart as she was in the middle ages and in my opinion those who advise her to be educated like a man have wisdom on their side but still my wife does not like Katie because she was an actress and for her ingratitude her pride her extravagances and all the innumerable vices one woman can always discover in another besides myself and my family we have two or three of my daughter's girl friends to dinner and alexander adolphovich gnecker liza's admirer and suitor he is a fair young man not more than thirty years old of middle height very fat broad-shouldered with reddish hair round his ears and a little stained moustache which give his smooth chubby face the look of a doll's he wears a very short jacket a fancy waistcoat large striped trousers very full at the hip and very narrow in the leg and brown boots without heels His eyes stick out like a lobster's, his tie is like a lobster's tail, and I can't help thinking even that the smell of lobster soup clings about the whole of this young man. He visits us every day, but no one in the family knows where he comes from, where he was educated, or how he lives. He cannot play or sing, but he has a certain connection with music, as well as singing, for he is agent for somebody's pianos, and is often at the academy.' He knows all the celebrities and he manages concerts he gives his opinion on music with great authority and i have noticed that everybody hastens to agree with him rich men always have parasites about them so do the sciences and the arts it seems that there is no science or art in existence which is free from such foreign bodies as this mr necker i am not a musician and perhaps i am mistaken about necker besides i don't know him very well but i can't help suspecting the authority and dignity with which he stands beside the piano and listens when any one is singing or playing you may be a gentleman and a privy Councillor a hundred times over but if you have a daughter you can't be guaranteed against the pettiness that are so often brought into your house and into your own humour by courtings engagements and weddings for instance i cannot reconcile myself to my wife's solemn expression every time necker comes to our house nor to those bottles of chateau lafitte port and sherry which are put on the table only for him to convince him beyond doubt of the generous luxury in which we live nor can i stomach the staccato laughter which liza learned at the academy and her way of screwing up her eyes when men are about the house above all i can't understand why it is that such a creature should come to me every day and have dinner with me-a creature perfectly foreign to my habits my science and the whole tenor of my life a creature absolutely unlike the men i love my wife and the servants whisper mysteriously that that is the bridegroom but still i can't understand why he's there it disturbs my mind just as much as if a zulu were put next to me at table besides it seems strange to me that my daughter whom i used to think of as a baby should be in love with that necktie those eyes those chubby cheeks formerly i either enjoyed my dinner or was indifferent about it now it does nothing but bore and exasperate me since i was made an excellency and dean of the faculty for some reason or other my family found it necessary to make a thorough change in our menu and the dinner arrangements instead of the simple food i was used to as a student and a doctor i am now fed on potage puree with some uh, susuki swimming about in it and kidneys in madeira the title of general and my renown have robbed me forever of she and savoury pies and roast goose with applesauce and brim with kasha. They robbed me as well of my maid servant Agasha, a funny talkative old woman. Instead of whom I am now waited on by Yegor, a stupid conceited fellow who always has a white glove in his right hand the intervals between the courses are short but they seem terribly long there is nothing to fill them we don't have any more of the old good humour the familiar conversations the jokes and the laughter no more mutual endearments or the gaiety that used to animate my children my wife and myself when we met at the dinner-table for a busy man like me dinner was a time to rest and meet my friends and a feast for my wife and children not a very long feast to be sure but a gay and happy one for they knew that for half an hour i did not belong to science and my students but solely to them and to no one else No more chance of getting tipsy on a single glass of wine, no more agasha, no more brim with kasha, no more the old uproar to welcome our little contretemps at dinner, when the cat fought the dog under the table, or Katie's headband fell down her cheek into her soup. Our dinner nowadays is as nasty to describe as to eat. On my wife's face, there is pompousness, an assumed gravity, and the usual anxiety. She eyes our plates nervously. I see you don't like the meat, honestly, don't you like it? And I must answer, "Don't worry, my dear. The meat is very good. she you're always taking my part, Nikolai stepaniitch. You never tell the truth. Why has Alexander Adolfovitch eaten so little, and the same sort of conversation for the whole of dinner liza laughs staccato and screws up her eyes i look at both of them and at this moment at dinner here i can see quite clearly that their inner lives have slipped out of my observation long ago i feel as though once upon a time i lived at home with a real family but now i am dining as a guest with an unreal wife and looking at an unreal liza there has been an utter change in both of them while i have lost sight of the long process that led up to the change no wonder i don't understand anything what was the reason of the change i don't know perhaps the only trouble is that god did not give my wife and daughter the strength he gave me from my childhood i have been accustomed to resist outside influences and have been hardened enough such earthly catastrophes as fame being made general the change from comfort to living above my means acquaintance with high society have scarcely touched me i have survived safe and sound but it all fell down like an avalanche on my weak unhardened wife and liza and crushed them Necker and the girls talk of fugues and counterfugues singers and pianists Bach and Brahms and my wife frightened of being suspected of musical ignorance smiles sympathetically and murmurs oh wonderful oh is it possible why necker eats steadily jokes gravely and listens condescendingly to the lady's remarks now and then he has the desire to talk bad french and then he finds it necessary for some unknown reason to address me magnificently votre excellence and i am morose apparently i embarrass them all and they embarrass me i never had any intimate acquaintance with class antagonism before but now something of the kind torments me indeed i try to find only bad traits in necker it does not take long and then i am tormented because one of my friends has not taken his place as bridegroom in another way too his presence has a bad effect upon me usually when i am left alone with myself or when i am in the company of people i love i never think of my merits and if i begin to think about them they seem as trivial as though i had become a scholar only yesterday but in the presence of a man like necker my merits appear to me like an extremely high mountain whose summit is lost in the clouds while neckers move about the foot so small as hardly to be seen after dinner i go up to my study and light my little pipe the only one during the whole day the sole survivor of my old habit of smoking from morning to night my wife comes in to me while i am smoking and sits down to speak to me just as in the morning i know beforehand what the conversation will be ''We ought to talk seriously, Nikolai Stepanovitch. she begins. ''I mean about Liza. Why don't you attend?'' ''Attend to what?'' ''You pretend you don't notice anything. It's not right. It's not right to be unconcerned. Necker has intentions about Liza. What do you say to that?'' ''I can't say he's a bad man, because I don't know him. But I've told you a thousand times already that I don't like him.'' ''But that's impossible. Impossible!'' She rises and walks about in agitation. "'It's impossible to have such an attitude to a serious matter,' she says. "'When our daughter's happiness is concerned, we must put everything personal aside.' "'I know you don't like him. Very well. But if we refuse him now and upset everything, how can you guarantee that Liza won't have a grievance against us for the rest of her life?' heaven knows there aren't many young men nowadays it's quite likely there won't be another chance he loves liza very much and she likes him evidently of course he hasn't a settled position but what is there to do please god he'll get a position in time he comes of a good family and he's rich how did you find that out he said so himself his father has a big house in kharkov and an estate outside you must certainly go to Kharkov. why you'll find out there you have acquaintances among the professors there i'd go myself but i'm a woman i can't i will not go to Kharkov. i say morosely my wife gets frightened a tormented expression comes over her face for god's sake nikolai stipanich she implores sobbing for god's sake help me with this burden it hurts me it is painful to look at her very well varya i say kindly if you like very well i'll go to kharkov and do everything you want she puts her handkerchief to her eyes and goes to cry in her room i am left alone a little later they bring in the lamp the familiar shadows that have wearied me for years fall from the chairs and the lamp-shade on to the walls and the floor when i look at them it seems that it's night already and the cursed insomnia has begun i lie down on the bed then i get up and walk about the room then lie down again my nervous excitement generally reaches its highest after dinner before the evening for no reason i begin to cry and hide my head in the pillow all the while i am afraid somebody may come in i am afraid i shall die suddenly I am ashamed of my tears. Altogether, something intolerable is happening in my soul. I feel I cannot look at the lamp or the books or the shadows on the floor or listen to the voices in the drawing-room any more. Some invisible, mysterious force pushes me rudely out of my house. I jump up, dress hurriedly, and go cautiously out into the street so that the household shall not notice me. Where shall I go?' the answer to this question has long been there in my brain to Katie end of story two part two